Welcome to The Wrap-Up, a weekly podcast that gives you an insider's look at the top stories in Hollywood. I'm your host, Sharon Waxman, the founder and editor-in-chief of The Wrap, and joining me is my co-host, Daniel Goldblatt, assistant managing editor. Welcome, Daniel. Hey. Hey, Sharon. Uh, Let's do a quick exercise. Raise your hand if you are the co-host of a podcast that was nominated for two LA Press Club Awards. (laughs) That'd be both of us. Thank you very much. Good for us. Two nominations. Pretty cool. Yeah, pretty cool considering we're not even a year old and we just kind of made it up in the middle of the (laughs) pandemic. So, you know, good on us. Not too bad. Not too bad. Not too bad. Congrats to you, Daniel. Oh, no, no, no. All you. I mean, mostly me, but also some of you. Yes. A little bit. It's what we call, it's a team effort. And this week, the team pulled it off again. Um, And here's why. This week, we get to speak to director Spike Lee and actor Delroy Lindo about The Five Bloods, which is their film about a group of Vietnam vets who return to the killing grounds years later. And the film is told on the backdrop of America's tortured racial history in that conflict. Then we'll take a look at the hottest social media app around, Clubhouse. Should Facebook and Twitter be worried about its meteoric rise? This week's Tech Talk with the raps Sean Birch and big technology writer Alex Kentrowitz dove deep into all things Clubhouse, and we'll bring you that conversation a little later on. But first, Sharon, let's do some headlines. Let's do it. Conservative radio host Rush Limbaugh died this week at the age of 70. He was diagnosed with advanced lung cancer in February of 2020. Discussing the death of a polarizing figure such as Limbaugh is not easy. CNN called him a conservative media icon. The New York Times described him as having, quote, a divisive style of mockery, grievance, and denigrating language. The Washington Post called him a, quote, provocateur and cultural phenomenon. Those are all pretty nice ways of saying what Limbaugh was really about, feeding the raw base instincts of his conservative audience. The Daily Beast did an article called Rush Limbaugh Spent His Lifetime Speaking Ill of the Dead. And when the news broke, Glad tweeted, quote, Rush Limbaugh spent much of his career maliciously attacking LGBTQ people, including mocking those impacted by the AIDS crisis. News outlets reporting on his death should include this hateful history, end quote. Sharon, I'm wondering when we're covering the death of someone Rush like Rush Limbaugh, is it a respect the dead kind of thing or do you just tell it like it was? Yeah, I think that is a a great fucking question. Thank you. Um, I I think it is hard to speak ill of the dead. And when when they occupy this divisive zone, this gray zone, right? When when somebody like Hitler or Stalin dies or a Saddam Hussein or a Gaddafi, because I was around for when Saddam Hussein died and was killed and Muammar Gaddafi, these are all sort of devil figures in our society. But Rush Limbaugh is right in the middle of it all. Um, I would say that you have to obviously carefully tell the truth about someone. I don't think that you can slash and burn your way through American society and culture for 30 to 40 years. And then when you die, suddenly be um, politely regarded as an icon of radio greatness, or uh, just say like a voluble, you know, whatever are the words that you want to say about somebody. Um, I heard one one a commentator this morning talk about how Rush Limbaugh made it okay to say things aloud that 
led us directly into the, 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 the horrors of the Trump era, the worst excesses of the Trump era. And in fact, having a president who felt empowered and permitted to constantly speak ill of everyone and anyone and constantly insult and offend and insinuate about people who were vastly less powerful than him, which I think has been a terrible thing for our society. I think we're all so relieved to have a Joe Biden in the White House, whether you're right wing or left wing, but just not have somebody friggin' insulting somebody every day. Well, Rush Limbaugh played a huge role in making that possible. And I don't think we ever imagined that it would rise to the presidency, that the president would not feel constrained to be mindful of his words, or maybe Trump was mindful of his words, but to be careful with the with how words wound or uh, drive uh, impulsive or radical or extreme behavior by people who take you at your word. Um, and then, of course, lie, not to mention. Rush Limbaugh said a lot of very... Uh, not just provocative, but inciting things. So I think it's important to say that. I do. Yeah, I don't think, I think there's a difference between having a difference of opinion and and spewing hate speech. <laughs> and I don't know how you can uh, forgive that and how you can rationalize that away. And I think you made an interesting point connecting the rise of Rush Limbaugh to the birth of Trump. Trump was, uh, he made his, return, I guess, to the media yesterday after uh, Limbaugh passed away. He went on Fox News and basically said, you know, Rush was in in it with me from the beginning. He was one of the first people who liked my, you know, controversial speech the day I announced my presidency. And I, that's not a coincidence. I don't I, don't I mean, think. it's like you think about it, like uh, I think The View, we had a post about this this morning that The View talked about this him being the beginning, the opening of, of sort of an outlet for toxic male rage. Um, you know, toxic white male rage, particularly. He was the beginning of that. I think that Alex Jones, you know, became like an, an even more extreme uh, expression of that. How that is healthy uh, for us, I don't know, is somehow responds to some a deeply aggrieved part of the, you know, white male forgotten psyche, which is something I think we could talk a lot about. And I do think a lot about because it's something that that is a real uh, force in our society that we saw at the Capitol, at the January 6th ride at the Capitol. And I think that we're going to continue to see it, even if Alex Jones is no longer, even if Rush Limbaugh is dead, and even if Alex Jones is no longer on mainstream radio. Um, I think that you got, we, we, we do no one any service, and we are not um, being. I don't know, uh, denigrating the dead to be thoughtful and honest, you know, when somebody passes and who, and we have to say what it is anyway. Yeah, I think on the opposite end of that spectrum a little bit, um, Marty Schottenheimer, a very famous football coach had passed away, I think a week mm -hmm. or two ago. And the Washington post put in the headline that he was famous for playoff failure. Like he, yeah. he was very notorious for having great regular season teams and then getting upset in the playoffs. And, yeah, I guess that that and they changed you know, the be mentioned, but not in the headline. Yeah, they yeah. actually changed it, but they they kept it right. in the lead. And it's just like Jesus, like you know, I when it's a good person, and I hate to draw the line between good and bad between Marty Schottenheimer and, and who's the arbiter of good, but I think that's pretty fair in this case. I just think like it's crazy to point out someone's shortcomings in the headline of a of an obit, but. Rush yeah, Limbaugh might be the exception of the rule. I was also reminded that in a, a prior life when I was uh, at TMZ, 
I wrote Fred Phelps's obit, the Westboro Baptist Church leader, who was mm. very famously all sorts of terrible things. And all I did was put in uh, the video for Cool and the Gang Celebrate. I didn't write anything else but that. <laughs> so, That's one way to do it. it. Yeah, it was a different time on it's the internet. Different back time. Then. All right, moving on then. Um, American Idol took some heat this week for featuring Claudia Conway. She is the 16-year-old daughter of Kellyanne and George Conway, that right-wing, left-wing couple you may know about. The drama between Kelly and her famous parents was featured on the show, and Variety TV critic Daniel Daddario called it, quote, the worst sort of exploitation of a minor that reality, that reality TV has done in memory, close quote. Claudia Conway said it was Idol that reached out to her and offered her the chance to audition after she posted a video of herself singing on social media. Daniel, I would ask, did Idol cross the line here? And what is it with reality shows and Republicans? I have Anyone? no idea. It's such a weird phenomenon that they have. Usually it's it's Dancing with the Stars which has had such a crazy list of conservative and Republican. Sean over the Spicer. Years. Sean Spicer, most recently, Bristol Palin, Geraldo, Tom DeLay, oh my Tucker God. Carlson, by the way, which I forgot about. And this, he was still on MSNBC back then. He did Dancing with the Stars in 2006. Rick Perry. I mean, it's a weird. Secret, like right wing booker producer over there. I don't know. It's very strange. They're tapping into something. I don't know what it is. But in this case, to bring on a minor felt very strange. And the fact that they sought her out was also very creepy to me because the the drama between her and Kellyanne and George is very real. There's some weird things that have happened there. And to bring a 16-year-old into it for ratings feels completely wrong to me. Like, it feels completely like what broadcast television executives do. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess, yeah. but I don't know. This one felt weird. And, and in general, it, 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 there's it, sort yeah. of this – after Spicer, there became – you know, it's not like Democrats – and, and liberals don't do television, right? Like Joe Biden was on Parks and Rec. Hillary Clinton was on a bunch of different things. Michelle Obama has done things, but there's there's this sort First of one, backlash. They're, they're not minors. Let's start with that. That's certainly that. But there's also been this, this thing lately where liberals are very quick to say, let's not forgive the terrible things that these people did in, while in office, the lying and, and all these various things by making them seem all fun and human. And I don't know where the line is there. I don't know why it would be acceptable for one side and another, what's good and bad again, but it just seems like a very strange trend. I don't understand it. Well, but the thing for me in this particular, I think it, it is kind of a, it's, it's not a strange trend in the sense that you just take somebody who had, who has been in the headlines. It's really pretty simple. And, but the question that you brought up, I thought I think is really worth talking about is whether it's exploitive. I mean, we, at the wrap, I remember the first time that Claudia Conway posted on her TikTok, uh, there was a discussion of like, should, you know, I, I flagged it, I think, I, at the time, and people, you and other editors might have, I can't remember exactly who it was, but pushed back and said, you know, she's a minor, we shouldn't, if she's acting in a way, she was, she was basically ripping her mom on her TikTok, and she was also leaking information about what was going on in the White House at the time because her mom was at the White House. And she was basically acting like a really rebellious teenager. Um, and I think we I think we probably didn't publish that first one because we weren't sure if we were if we were being exploitive or if we were somehow th this teenager was maybe, you know, struggling with something, you know, emotionally that we shouldn't be dabbling in because we didn't really know. Um, that all went out the window, actually, when this idol thing, because 
actually it's it struck me that she and her mom might be, was this like for real that her mom comes on like, love you, honey, and love you, mom, when in fact they've been kind of the war of the roses over TikTok, you know, on social media for the past six months. So I think that there's exploitation on both sides, you know, I th- that, that the Conways are prepared to put themselves out there for the, the sake of publicity or fame, and, and that American Idol is prepared to exploit them for ratings. It's kind of yeah. it's kind of icky on all sides, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think Katy Perry had a line like, you're not going to D.C., you're going to Hollywood. And that was her way of saying she made it on to the next round. I think it's interesting whenever you talk about people who aren't famous and are related to or tangentially in the universe of famous people, whether or not they themselves seek that fame out is sort of like the line for me about whether or not I think it becomes interesting to cover them. You know, if you're someone's brother and you don't do anything, you mind your own business and you somehow find yourself getting pulled into things, that feels weird to me. But if you're someone who tries to get out, out there and is constantly putting yourself in the public or if, or if a celebrity is the kind of person who shows off their kids on social media and does all these things, I think that sort of opens it up a little bit more. Mm-hmm. than it does like people who are really trying to be private. That's There's a line there for me personally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. And I, and I think she's crossed it herself. Mm-hmm. I think both sides. No one should be happy. Yeah, but the thing reality. is you don't know what the toll is on on, on um, Kellyanne. We don't really care, but you don't know what the toll <laughs> is on somebody who's, who's 16. That's, what, that's the thing. Yeah, it'll be interesting anyway. to see how she turns out. Good luck to you. All right. Martin Scorsese is not going to like us talking about content. He went off this week about the labeling of films merely as just, quote, content. But the truth is, everyone is after content, and they are paying big money to get it. Donald Glover just scored an eight-figure deal this week to jump from FX to Amazon. Former Disney executives Kevin Mayer and Tom Staggs are in talks to buy Scooter Braun's Ithaca Holdings and Ben Silverman's Propagate content as part of a larger roll-up of production companies. Roku is reportedly looking to expand its original content offerings. This is after they purchased the Quibi library last month. And none of that even factors in the hundreds of millions of dollars that are being spent by streamers to acquire library content like Friends or The Office. Sharon, there's so much money being thrown around these days. What do you make of what I'm calling the great content race of 2021? Yeah, I think that was a great summary. I feel like you just summarized the pages <laughs> of our Rap Pro uh, premium service where we like this dive week. into this every single like every single week. It's like that was yeah, we did that story and that story and that that story. Um, and if but if you if you add it all up, that is really where it takes you is to this um, massive gold rush around around content. Um, I think it's going to continue for a while because you have all of these streaming services. They all need lots of new content all the time. So they are vying to buy libraries, whatever libraries are out there, because all the libraries have moved around, of course, because now like Netflix lost the rights to everything. It's gone to Peacock. It's gone back to, you know, HBO Max or whatever. Uh, So trying to follow the bouncing ball there as a user is completely like mind uh, twisting. But in general, whatever remaining libraries are there are, are, having seeing their values shoot up there's money in the marketplace there's just a lot of money in the marketplace Be, partly because interest rates are so low partly because there's different vehicles now these SPACs we keep writing about which are ways to take companies public there's a whole bunch of them now that are now looking on the hunt for um i would say entertainment and media companies preferably tech-oriented to buy and grow and take them public. And then there's just the basic 
if you are A-list talent like a Donald Glover or an Ava DuVernay or a um, Lena Waithe, or, you know, I can just go on and on. There's, um, there's a limited number of them, but the, those star talents of showrunners and Shonda um, Rhimes, Ryan writers, Murphy, I mean, there's Shonda, so many, yeah. Shonda Rhimes, Ryan Murphy, um, Kenya Barris, you know, Sha Kenya Barris, right? Uh, all of these people who have huge deals, and now you're seeing them getting poached between the various big deals that they've already made, like just happened with Donald Glover. So, um, and by the way, don't we want to see that new show Donald Glover and Phoebe Waller-Bridge are doing together, which is Mr. and Mrs. Smith? Yeah, they're making a TV Thank show you. version of the very popular, very famous. Oh my God. Angelina Jolie, Brad Pitt movie. Yeah. So we're all going to be lined up to see that one. So anyway, I think that we're in for a lot more of this. It's going to be lots of jostling, lots of bidding wars. And we saw, by the way, at Sundance too, there were lots of bidding wars, you know, records being broken over sums that were paid for, for movies that may or may not turn out to be good investments. But that is the world that we're living in right now. Yeah. I think it's very interesting that it feels like we wanted to get away from cable because we didn't want to pay all this money for all the stuff that maybe we didn't use or want. And now everything has become so fractured and so spread out that you have to subscribe to five or six different things to get everything. And yep. you're encountering all these new problems. Like I hate every time I turn on my TV, I can't just go to one place to see what it is I might be ready to watch. I have to, no, you go, cannot. I have to pop into Netflix and be like, what, was there anything I was watching there? I have to pop in HBO Max. Was there anything I was watching? Like I have to go all these different places. It just feels like we've we're that's good. that's going to have to be involved. It is. It is, and also try to remember where you. Where can I watch Friends now? You know, whatever. <laughs> so um, I, that is definitely going to be a problem that's going to have to be sorted out in the next couple of years because it does not serve the consumer at all. And also, it's like we're going to get settled if we're not already into certain habits. We all have the habit by now of going to Netflix and then chilling, supposedly. But you know, how do you how do you break that habit or add to it to get somebody to go on Paramount Plus now or whatever it is that AMC, that is everything the other is a plus story. now. Yes, exactly. So um, I think uh, you got to have you've got to have these marquee names. And you've got to have these libraries with shows like Friends. And there's not a lot of them, uh, which is why you're seeing the sums of money being paid to get something that that's your hook. That's your, um, you know, that that's your display window. Of yeah, we, we've talked about this before. Like, you know, Apple had to have the morning show because it had to be the thing that, you know, drew got people in. in. Netflix started with House of Cards and then they became you know, the place to find all these other reruns, but the, you need that tentpole. And it's part of the reason I think why Quibi never became a thing because there wasn't anything that even drew you in to even try the rest of the stuff. There was, you know, if they'd had one big thing, one I think it would be a much different story. I think people would have possibly stuck around at least for longer than they did. <laughs> all right. As always, we like to conclude this first segment with a little something we call wax on, wax off, where we allow our Founder and Editor-in-Chief Sharon Waxman, the opportunity to wax on about something she is particularly into this week and wax off about something she is particularly fired up about. Sharon, as always, the floor is yours. All right. This is going to be so fun. Okay. So Daniel always brings you a television show, and I never do that. I'm going to bring you one now. Oh, nice. Yes. It's a French show. It's on Netflix. I've actually had a couple of friends who told me for months to watch it, and I finally did. It's called Call My Agent, and it's basically for those of us who work in Hollywood, 
it's really fun because it's the French version of what's going on at CAA or WME, actually more like a Gersh or something like that, because it's a small, it's a boutique agency. Is Gersh going to get mad at me that I just called him a boutique agency? <laughs> wait. Okay, wait, give me another one. Like Ally. Um it's a boutique, it's a boutique tell agency. Anyway, it's really fun. There's real French uh, actresses and actors who play themselves like Natalie Bay and Cécile de la France who um, play themselves as clients on the show. And it's all about the sort of the backstabbing and the lying and the cheating and the um, scrambling that comes together to kind of bring a, a, some young writer, director, geeky guy together with this gorgeous you know, actress who supposedly knows how to uh, pole dance to play a um, environmentalist stripper in this new, you know, indie movie that she needs to get back in the game. Anyway, it's it's really fun. It's really well written. The characters are super well drawn. And as a bonus, you get to look at Paris the whole time. So for me, who used to live in Paris and I consider that like kind of my second home. Uh, it's really fun because I ain't been anywhere near Paris in a long time. <laughs> okay. That's my, that's my wax on. My wax off is, I know we're all having a really great time making fun of Ted Cruz and who doesn't deserve to be made fun of more than Ted Cruz who fucked off to Cancun with his family while his state was literally freezing to death under a snowstorm and a power failure and, and and many major infrastructure failures, not only power and ha people having to boil their water, which is very hard to believe. Um, that said, my wax off really is about the lack of infrastructure and our neglect of our infrastructure in our country overall as a whole. I don't know enough about the state of Texas to make an effective critique, but it certainly seems when you've got millions of people boiling water in the middle of a snowstorm, you probably got some pretty serious infrastructure problems. More to the point, when you have a state whose job it is to, like whose main industry is oil and gas, not having oil and gas to heat people's homes in the middle of a snowstorm, that strikes me as some kind of problem. So for those who say that the government doesn't have a role and we, everything has to be um, done by private industry because the government's going to screw it up um, this is what happens when we neglect our infrastructure and when we have uh, public officials who perhaps don't take seriously the requirements of looking out long term for what supports your citizens. That's my wax off. How about you, Daniel? Um, I watched a documentary this week called Assassins that I really enjoyed. It's Ooh. about the um, 2017 murder of Kim Jong-nam. And oh, the I two women see that. who sort of killed him in the middle of the airport. Yeah, it was really good. It's a crazy story. These women essentially, their story is that they thought they were on a prank show, that they'd been filming yeah. a bunch of little prank videos. And it led to the culmination of this day where they both came together. They had never met before. They'd never seen each other. And they sort of uh, infected, I guess would be the word, Kim Jong-nam with VX poison gas. And he died an hour later. Yeah. And they went on trial and, and it's about the entire story of, of what happened to them. And the filmmakers had incredible access. They were with the attorneys. They were at the trial. There's a, there's, you definitely get as involved as you can. I think like in the story. you couldn't, you could, you wouldn't make the story up. Like it's so, crazy. it's such a bizarre story and it's just very interesting to watch. And, and I hadn't followed 
you know, I knew that their defense was they thought they were filming a prank video, but I didn't realize just how far back it went that they'd done. They'd been doing these these videos for months that these two, they each had these handlers that were yeah, that they set it up. Yeah. And it was just like a very, it was like a long con essentially. And where you know, is this documentary viewable? Um, I think you can rent it on like Amazon Prime Video or Apple TV or on YouTube. So you just rent it. Okay. Go yeah, on. it's a few bucks. Um, I thought it was it was just fantastic. I really enjoyed it. So whatever else you're paying for your subscriptions this month, you can pay in yes, addition. Yes, this one. Yeah, it's not available on a part of a streaming platform just yet. Um, my wax off this week, a little bit what you talked about with Ted Cruz. I can't get over how many times... People like Ted Cruz do or say something where we have the receipts of them doing or saying the exact opposite. Ted Cruz has a very long history of making fun of California, for example, whenever they had power issues due to the fires. We've had rolling blackouts and things like that. And he loved to dunk on Gavin Newsom and be like, you guys can't even keep the lights on. Exact same thing is happening in Texas now. Yeah, it's just incredible like six to months me. ago. It's incredible to me just how many times people like Ted Cruz are there's just always receipts, right? Like I think with Donald Trump, there were people would always All say there's, the a, there's always a tweet. There's always something of him saying the exact opposite of what he's now saying. I just, I don't understand the gall of people as if we don't have the history of what they've done. How, how about, how about Lindsey Graham saying, Oh, well, he's got the best one of all. He's it was the death the of the Republican Party if we elect him. And then a few years later, he's- And not just that, or also uh, when, when it came to not not nominating, uh, not hearing Merrick, Merrick Garland, Garland. Said, when Trump is, if he is ever elected and he has, he feels like, you can come back to me and show us like, okay. The to say the, the exact opposite when we have it on video, when we have it in writing, it's just incredible to me. I just- it, What you're saying is politicians are shameless. This is a revelation I, to you. I, apparently, I just learned it this week. It's terrible. <laughs> I can't stand it. All right. That'll do it for this week's Wax On, Wax Off. When we come back, we have Sharon's conversation with Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo from Five Bloods and a look at the newest social media juggernaut, Clubhouse. Stick around. It's taken some time for the culture to catch up to Spike Lee, who's been making films about the American Black experience with sharp-edged wit since the 1980s. His work of late takes a turn into history with Defive Bloods, the story of four Vietnam vets who returned to the country where they fought and suffered in the midst of the civil rights era. Delroy Lindo plays Paul, a MAGA-loving vet who must face a multitude of past traumas on this journey. We're so pleased to welcome to the wrap-up Spike Lee and Delroy Lindo. Welcome. Thank you. Good morning. Good afternoon. <laughs> pleasure, pleasure. First of all, how are you guys doing? Because uh, we're still in pandemic land. Are you guys healthy? Are you good? God bless. Yes. And yes. Taking it day by day. Day by day. So you told me you got you got you got a shot, one shot already. Delroy, you, have you been able to uh, get, get the vaccine? You I have. I got my first shot this past week. Okay. Amen. Glad to hear it. So let's got, got Moderna or Pfizer. Which one you got? I got Moderna. That was what was available. That's all right. What, hey. what did you get? What did you get? Pfizer, baby. All right, all right. <laughs> well, I got zipping. Whoa, whoa, whoa. The Pfizer. The variants can't mess with the Pfizer. So look, man, look here. Look here. If if we are on a Zoom call this time next year. You will know that the Moderna worked for me. All right. Hey, hey, all right. 
Fuck it, you know I want you to out. Come on. <laughs> <laughs> well, but to say this though, uh, that because I just want to think that that we're flipping. We all know that we're slowly approaching the half a million mark. Excuse me, half five hundred thousand. Excuse me, five hundred thousand mark of, of our American brothers and sisters. Yes, no longer here. Yeah, we can't forget that. We're still losing about 1,300 people a day. And it's uh, it's shocking. It's actually been just this time where I think it's been hard. You just pinch yourself. You kind of can't believe things can get worse or you can't believe that there's this on top of that, on top of that. If you are if you like history, man, we are living through history, right? I mean- Right through it. I, I actually want to, speaking of history, I want to say something, uh, just a, a slight corrective to your uh, intro. Um, uh, Sharon, please, and and that is that. Um, in my opinion, in my humble opinion, um, Spike's work is not about African American history. It is about American history, told through the lens of the African American experience. Totally. And I think you know that that's that's important. That's important. It's America. It's American history. I one thousand percent endorse that. Uh, so I'm not redoing the intro. I'm just going to let you correct me right here. <laughs> but, um, but he certainly has been bringing voices and characters to the screen for a long time. That it seems like our culture has kind of woken up to it. Uh, the the need to have that inclusiveness a little bit. Uh, you know, way late, and Spike's been doing it for 30 years. This was really kind of my point. Um, by the way, Spike, you've got like 93 film credits on IMDb. It kind of blew my mind when I looked at that. So we don't know when you sleep because you must be, and you must actually be 85 years old by now or something like that. No, I'm, I'm doing the, the Benjamin, I'm doing the Brad Pitt thing. Yeah, the Benjamin Button. What's it called? Right. Benjamin what? What's that? What's the title of the movie? Benjamin, Benjamin Buttons. Yeah, I'm doing the black version of that. <laughs> yeah, you're going backwards. You're going, going backwards. backwards. <laughs> exactly. All right, so, so let's talk about um, The Five Bloods a bit. The, the movie came out in June, and you guys have been talking about it for some time. Um, movies have a have a life, and they have a journey. Yo, how many months? Six. <laughs> <laughs> okay. One, two, three, four, five. Six. <laughs> you know those Tres Crotchels says. <laughs> so, go so ahead. every film has its life journey. It's like you, the, the life of when you make it, the life of when you promote it, when it's coming out, and then the life of how it lives in in our bloodstream of the culture once it's out there and people are seeing it and reacting to it and talking about it. So the first thing uh, I want to say is, uh, how have how are you feeling about? Where how the film has impacted and had an impact in the months since it came out in, in these really kind of very unusual circumstances, which is during the pandemic. Delroy, go ahead. Um, specific to the pandemic, because partially because of the pandemic and the fact that I think people have a, a, a broadened awareness of everything, of life in general, I want to believe that they also have a broadened awareness of um, culture, entertainment, um, data that is reaching them. Mm. And so I want to I want to believe that the because of the pandemic, Spike mentioned to me right before the film was was released 
that as a result of the unfortunate occurrence of not going to Cannes, which of course we all would have loved to have done, yeah, uh, and the unfortunate occurrence of not attending various events that we would have otherwise attended in support of the film, the positive of people being at home is that more people actually saw the film hmm. because it came to them in their living rooms. Hmm. Mm -hmm. And um, A, that has been a positive, and B, I want to believe that that has contributed, contributed to the power of the film and the power of the audience responses to the film. Hmm. Spike, how about you? I agree. We had a, we had a, a captive audience, and here's a funny thing: people were coming to me and saying, "That scene in the film, the Black Lives Matter scene, did you just shoot that?" Oh yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. oh, that's right. That's that, right. That was the first thing we shot. In what that year? Thing. Hmm. In twenty twenty. No, I'm saying that scene mm -hmm. was the. Thing we shot while we were in Thailand. Wow. Yeah. And in yeah, fact, it feels like, it feels like you plucked it. It wasn't even right. really the official day of the start of principal photography. It's like we did it like in like a week before the official day started. That's the first <laughs> thing we shot. Yeah. Wow. I want, I want to say something else in in, in support of <clears throat> the press press um, aspect of this film and speaking with various journalists and speaking together and, and, and Spike and I and, and, and our cast, um, uh, our brethren, uh, Clark Peters, Norm Lewis, Isaiah Whitlock Jr., uh, Jonathan Majors, um, uh, obviously Chadwick. Chadwick could not be with us, but it, it's, it's because we've been supporting the film in this particular manner through Zoom, through these, these electronic meetings, it's also enhanced, I think, my awareness and under, not understanding, my awareness of how we all contributed, what the experience has meant for all of us, and how we then regurgitate that back to the various, I don't know if regurgitate is the right word, but how we then- You reflect it, you reflect it back. Reflect it back to the various mm -hmm. journalists that we've spoken with and the various outlets and that has also enhanced the experience and become a part of the making of the film, if mm -hmm. that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I mean, what, one of the things that is remarkable about the film, first of all, it's, it's very, very ambitious. I mean, you it's a two and a half hour uh, Long. journey. Pardon? Longer than that. Two, how long is it? Close to that. Nah, this was like 240 something. Yeah, the end credits. <laughs> okay, the end credits. But, but here's the thing I like to say, Sharon. The goal was to make an epic film. That yeah. was that was it from the get go. You know. Okay, so to, you're 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 feeding my thought, which is that we haven't seen a film about the experience of black GIs in Vietnam. There's been so many films about Vietnam, and. It's really interesting to step back at this part. Uh, we're sort of looking at the work from last year because it's award season and we're looking at performances and we're looking at themes. And 
it's impossible not to notice that there are several films from this period looking at the black experience, whether it's you know Regina King's One Night in Miami, whether it's Judas and the Black Messiah, and whether it's oh, King, Bloods. directed by uh, directed by Shaka King. Thank you. Yes, exactly. One of my grad film students. Oh, is he really? Yes. So is okay. Chloe too. That's amazing. Okay. Well, now now you've got a let you got you, now you got legacies following in your footsteps and competing with you during award season. But uh, such is no, such no, is life. Such is life. No competition. All love. All love. NYU grad film Violet Love. Okay, you better watch out because we're based in LA and you, the USC people get really nervous. But okay, hey, man, we we still kick him in the ass. They get mad all they want. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I'm not getting into that right now, but let's just talk about this period. It, it, it's 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 never a coincidence when thematically these these things surge forth. You know, it, it's uh, it's not a coincidence, right? That this film has occurred to you. It started out as a story that Oliver Stone was interested in making. It wasn't even about black GIs to begin with, and then you took it and you transformed it into a story that had not been told before. Um, and then meantime, you've got these four iconic figures in Regina's movie, One Night in Miami, which was a play that she then decided to make into a film for her first feature direct directing project. So it, what, what, what's your sense of like why this period is being translated into art by filmmakers, including yourself right now? Fertile ground. Mm. Fertile ground. I mean, uh, if you look at uh, our film, we have two bookends, Muhammad Ali and, yeah. and Dr. King, both who were very vocal about this immoral war and both paid a, a great price. Ali lost, was stripped of his heavyweight championship title, lost prime years of his athleticism, never to get back. And I think Dr. King was assassinated because of his. Uh, Spike, Dr. King was what? Assassinated. Assassinated. Oh, yeah, assassinated. Yes. Mm -hmm. Assassinated because his response, vocal response to the war. And in America, when you start fucking with the money, there were, you know, there's consequences. War. The war machine makes money. Mm -hmm. Money. And, and, you know, as long as he was talking about black folks being able to sip water from a, a, a white water fountain or to sit, you know, sit in front of the bus, you know, that, that you know, that's little stuff. Mm -hmm. Start saying when your comments are affecting Dow Chemical. Mm. Napalm. Mm, 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 mm. The war machine. On top of that, LBJ felt betrayed. He felt that they had a partnership with the 1964 Civil Rights Act. Mm -hmm. Right. And he felt like this was being pulled, his, right, this was being pulled from him when people they, are speaking out against the war, which he didn't know what to do about. He didn't yeah. have a solution. Both these men, at a great price, had to speak about what's truthful, 
where their morals were, and they paid a great price. Then you got Shaka's film, Fred Hampton. Yeah, another it, unknown. I mean, un unknown to, I'd say, to many. Certainly not unknown to... 20, 21 years old, we assassinated with a combination of Jacob, Jacob Hoover, FBI, and the Chicago police. And then with, with uh, Regina's film, Muhammad Ali, Jim Brown, Sam, Sam Cook. Okay, Sam Cook. Uh, who am I leaving out? Uh, Malcolm. Malcolm X. Malcolm X. <laughs> so, you know, it, it's I mean, the 1960s. It's, 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 you know, that's when black folks were taken to the street. That's when black folks... I want to use riots, but you know we have a scene where the Bloods learn that Dr. King's been assassinated. They learn from Hanoi Hannah. They didn't yeah. even know, and she, and she's saying, yeah. "Why are you fighting for this country when your sisters' brothers are burning down over hundred cities and the National Guard and the police are killing them?" Mm -hmm. So I mean. Let's not forget James Brown. Say it loud, I'm black and I'm proud. I mean, there was so much happening with black culture and the Afros and just identity. I, I finally identifying with Africa and, you know, Stokely Carmichael and Eldridge Cleaver. And, I, I mean, mean I, it's almost like we weren't willing, maybe as a culture, to identify what this is black heroism that you're pointing out, right? Yeah. Chadwick is the character in your film who is the heroic figure, um, the moral figure, and these other films raise up heroes who we've not chosen to recognize as heroes as, as a culture overall. Um, and I think it's taken black filmmakers to do that. Well, I think that uh, what you're seeing is that studios are not as reluctant as they were mm -hmm. in the past. Mm -hmm. And there have been several studies done that have stated in plain terms that companies, the more diverse your companies are, the more profit you're going to make. <laughs> it's, mm -hmm. just, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a fact. Yep. Yeah, I've seen studies in that regard, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you have made this big epic film, as you call it, uh, with Netflix, a streamer that worked out, you know, during the pandemic, despite missing the film festivals, which is which everybody missed. Uh, but it, it works out well because that that was where people could see it. Now, do do you think it's um, <clears throat> a better situation for you as a filmmaker to have these the, the street these streaming companies now that there's a wider uh, yes aperture for the storytelling. I'll give you I'll answer your question like this, Sharon. Netflix was the last place we can go. Mm -hmm. Everybody said no, or they said no in a different way, which was giving us a number a budget, which we both knew that mm -hmm. the film could be made for that. You know, that was okey-doke. So 
Is that like a $20 million number? That's the number they usually I like. I forgot what it was. You know, when people, I just, I don't, I don't remember. I don't, I don't, I went, when studios say, when, I, when people say no to me, I say, thank you very much and keep stepping. Hmm. I don't, I don't have to know the autopsy. Or, oh, so tell me, why did you want to make my film? Hmm. What, is there something wrong with it? Hmm. I don't do that. Hmm. So, and I just keep stepping and go to the next door. And Netflix was, so you'd go on to the studios. We went anywhere we could. And the last place was Netflix and Ted Sarandis, Scott Stupor, Tendo. Spike, was, was Netflix the last place because you really wanted to see this come out in theaters? It wasn't. At, at that point, you know, we at here's the thing though, we were gonna have here the whole world changed, but no one had the forecast. Mm. And I I hate to use if, but we were gonna have a, a small theatrical release mm -hmm. before it streamed on Netflix. I see. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah. Um, Delroy, let's talk about your performance. It's it is explosive, it's mesmerizing, it's very powerful. Um, and you have a lot, you, you, uh, bring a, you bring a lot to this role. Um, can you talk about that process? Uh, there's, there's many scenes where it's just you talking straight into the camera and, and in a way pouring out the, the trauma that your character has experienced and is experiencing. You talk about it. Uh, uh, Spike had, had told me that there would be these various scenes where I would be speaking directly to the camera. Um, I think I'm probably fortunate in as much as we did not shoot those scenes until later on in the process. We had been working for probably five or six weeks before we shot those particular scenes. And I felt much more grounded in the um, in the work. The process of building the character was similar to other processes, which is that in this instance, I talked to Vietnam vets. I read books uh, told from their points of view. Bloods was one of the first books that I had reread. That I reread a uh, book of verbatim accounts edited by um, a gentleman named Wallace Terry. Um, I spoke with various vets. A couple, in a couple of instances, specifically about their experiences with PTSD. And in other instances, I spoke with vets just about their experiences in general. Mm. And those things became the found, foundation for making this work, building this character. Mm -hmm. When we got to uh, Thailand, uh, Spike arranged for two additional vets to come in and speak with us. And we had, which was, all of those things were foundational to, to, to building this work. And then on top of all of that, we had, <clears throat> I don't know, maybe it was um, two weeks of 
what I call, what we call in the theater table work, where, where the main, myself, Clark, Norm, Isaiah, Spike, Jonathan, we sat around the table <clears throat> and dissected certain uh, scenes, certain aspects of the narrative. And um, all of those things, all of those experiences contributed to uh, the, the foundation of, of building this work. Mm -hmm. um, it's been phenomenal, you know, that Spike, from Spike saying to me, well, look, man, you'll be doing this particular scene straight to camera. And those particular scenes have been extremely impactful on audiences. And I didn't know, I didn't, I was not necessarily expecting that. I just took it in stride as yet another aspect of, of, of what the work that I had to do on this particular film. Um, I don't know. That's, that's pretty much. But you felt, you felt like, and Spike, I'd ask you as the person behind the camera, uh, that you, you got somewhere very raw and very, uh, real, I would say. Let me, let me say this before Spike, um, the circumstances that Spike as filmmaker set up for us as actors. And what I mean by that, the circumstances, we were very, very close. We all stayed in the same hotel in Thailand. Uh, we ended up, ended up spending a lot of time together. We were at lunch together. We were at breakfast together on the weekends in the hotel, and we were communing the whole time. <clears throat> uh, there were two young brothers um, who uh, came uh, and educated us in the DAP, digni dignity and pride, the, the, the various handshakes, those intricate handshakes. Mm -hmm. All of those things uh, contributed to this communing that we were, <clears throat> excuse me, engaged in and the bonds that was being forged that we then took it directly into the work. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's part of the power because that directly parallels the connections that a lot of these cats had as young men, as young boys in some in some instances, being together in Vietnam. Another and thing it, we did. No, yeah. go ahead. Go ahead. No, no, no. I'm co. You know, everything you said. You know, I'm co-signing. I like to add another thing we did because uh, Marvin Gaye's music was very, very important part of this. Yeah. So, so one day we I gave out the lyrics to all the songs and we just listened and right. read the lyrics at the same time. I think that was very, very, very wow. uh, impactful. It was. And, and, and no, go, was, go. No, man, it was impactful. And what was additionally impactful for me, anyhow, was that one did not know at that time it would have that kind of impact. Just dedicating a session or a portion of the rehearsal to just sitting and listening to that album with the lyrics in your hand <clears throat> and having that by osmosis, making the, making the connection with the music, having some sense of where the music came from, of what it meant to Marvin, Marvin's brother, their family. And then having scenes, a couple of scenes in the film 
where we were where we were singing those songs, we were speaking those lyrics. Yeah. It was, I don't know. It, I have to be very careful. <clears throat> Excuse me. I have to be very careful when I'm speaking about the experience of making this film because um, it was indeed very, very special. And it has become um, more special in the experience of talking to the various members of the press, audiences, everybody exchanging and disseminating how this work has impacted them and mm -hmm. how in turn their reactions, um, how they have been impacted, have impacted us as um, participants in this work. That, that's it was, it that's the best possible, that's the best possible outcome. Amen. That's piece exactly. of art. Um, I really would like to ask about Chadwick because um, it's just the tragedy of, ha of having lost him so young. Uh, I, I feel like we, I'd like to ask you how you came to choose him. Was he the first, first person you thought of for this role? He, he's, it's, it's a kind of a, not, I wouldn't say saintly character, but in some ways he's certainly the heroic character and, and also what it was like uh, working with him during the shoot. Well, let's look at the, let's look at the roles he played. Jackie Robinson, James Brown, Brown, Thurgood Marshall, and the Black Panther. Yeah. When Kevin Wilma and I wrote the character Storm of Norman, we wanted him to be this mythic character. And just think about the names I just said, the roles he played. So yeah. he just shows up. He's, I mean, he's a lot of, he's not, he's a great actor, but it's not a lot of work. I mean, people buy that he's mythic already <laughs> when they see him. Yeah. They've seen the mythic characters played in the past. Yeah. Yeah. And how was it uh, on the set? How was the. It was great. As Delroy could talk about it, about that, that scene, one of my favorite scenes. But uh, we've been shooting like five or six weeks, if I can remember correctly. That's before. right. Yeah. That's right. That's right. And he just, it was like, he just, like he, like he'd been there. He just slid in right there. And was like with us. He had no catching up to do, none whatsoever. The take it over about that the first day you were saying. The fact that it was his his first day of um, work, and he was plugged in. <laughs> he just was plugged in. He was plugged in, in the way that was very very similar to the way that, that we were plugged in. The difference being, I had five six weeks of work under my belt at that point. It was yeah. his first day of work. <clears throat> and- um, so tell, him the, tell him the scene, no, the scene. At the stream. The scene, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, the scene at the stream. The yeah, first, yeah. His first day of work was the, the penultimate scene between Norm and myself um, coming together in which uh, Norm, Chadwick forgives me. And that morning we had shot the scene where I'm speaking directly to the camera, talking about how I've lost my son, 
how America has tried to kill me, napalm me, all these things. And uh, uh-uh, I'm not going anywhere. We shot that scene. Hmm. The scene that ends with the fist in the air, right on, right on. Yeah, the end. We had shot that scene in the morning and the work had been, it had gone well. It had gone well. So now we, in the afternoon, we're filming Chadwick's first scene. The penalty. The first scene after lunch. Say it again. First scene after lunch. The first scene after lunch. Um, and I just was, in some instance, Sharon, all you need to know about Chadwick Boseman as an actor, as a man, as a human being on the planet all you need to know about him was present in that scene. In as much as he showed up, he was ready to the nth degree. Whatever prep he had done, it didn't matter that it was his first day of work and that I had been working for five weeks. I had my half of the scene to um, uh, contribute to. He had his half of the scene to contribute to, and we just came together and we did the work. And the fact that that scene has ended up being as impactful as it is, is in no small measure due to the fact that Chadwick was as ready and as prepared as he was, as was I. Mm. Um, and then, you know, Spike has spoken in the past. I did not know this until Spike started speaking about this in the various interviews. Um, we had found that, lo- and I, Spike, you should talk about this. But no, no, yeah. go ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. Well, we, we had found this location and it was not lit. Um, and as the shot where Chadwick is standing with his rifle in the air yeah. and that shaft of light comes down, yeah. <laughs> that's not Spike. Spike, not, Spike didn't plan that. That was something that was gifted to the production. That shaft of light with Chadwick standing in that shaft of light happened. And it is indicative of some other moments in the film where stuff just happened uh, in support of the storytelling. I, I just got goosebumps, okay? So I'm just gonna tell you that right now. Well, yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I got, it looks, I mean, it's this, it's this- uh, It was long yeah, and he uh, had like a, 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 a almost a Greek statue the way he was standing, with, with and it also thing. contributed to the aura of who this man is and was, and it and it contributed centrally to this notion that you guys were speaking about of Norm being this mythic figure, and. Uh, when I say I have to be careful when I'm speaking about these things, I, I'm the first to admit I was not aware of any of that when we were working. Mm. It's only in retrospect, <clears throat> in context of speaking about the work with various journalists and speaking amongst ourselves, that I become much more keenly aware of how we were gifted those things inside the work. Um, at the time, um, you know, the image that I have, or one of the images that I have, in between takes, I would I would go off and uh, prepare myself for the next take. And out of the corner of my eye, I would see Chadwick in his space, preparing in the way that he was. 
uh, preparing, and we would come together almost like two. You know, he was in his corner, <laughs> I was in my corner. Heavyweight champions waiting for the bell to ring, and and we, and, and we have and we have and we have uh, in our director. And again, I say this a lot because it's sometimes hard for me to speak, not hard, to speak about Spike in front of Spike, right? Um, but we have a director who has the skill, the magnitude of his skill is such that he knows to stay out of the way. He knows to leave us alone, turn on that camera, place the camera where he wants the camera placed, and then just let the work, allow the work to um, to it, happen. Here's what happened, though. It's not just me. I'm telling the whole crew, get away. The right. mix is fine. It's okay. They're sweating. Leave them alone. Move. Right. <laughs> Move. Right. And you know what, Sharon? That's. I'll tell you something. That's that's a, a, a major part of what has made speaking about the experience so rich. Uh, the reality is um, I'd rather not talk about the work at all, frankly. I'd rather just let the work be and let, let it impact audiences however it's going to impact them. Yeah. But to the extent that we, our jobs are to talk about the work, it's really rich you know, deconstructing some of these elements of what the process was and in context of how it has impacted audience. Then one other thing I'll say, there's that stream. I was on one side of the, there was a stream, it was water. And I think Spike and I, you came to me um, before we started filming. And at, at a certain point we decided, I think, and you, you may be able to clarify this Spike, at a certain point, we decided that I would walk through the water, <laughs> that I would walk through the water, that, that, that we would meet in the center of this stream. So he's walking through the water and I'm walking through the water. And I don't know. That's almost biblical, for God's sake. And again, I'm not thinking at the time, oh, my God, this is biblical. I'm not thinking that. We just make a choice. Spike, you want to walk through the water? Yeah, let me walk through the water, man. And. And that was a and, and here's the thing though it was Tom Siegel, a great DP, DP. uh-huh came to me and said, Spike, this location we have, I'm not happy with it. Let's you and I let's not take lunch and let's find a place for this scene because we all knew how important the scene was. I mean, mm -hmm. in this scene, Chadwick's character, Storm Norman, is coming back as a ghost. Yeah. To Forgive Storm and Norman. And so this stream. And the stream is if you if 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 we had panned a little to the right, there's a big giant waterfall. Waterfall. Oh, really? Oh wow. You see, like a wow. super eight footage later on, but that's the final scene, that waterfall. Yeah, that's yeah, yeah. a crazy waterfall. Yeah, it was super eight. But uh it was Tom, love, credit to Tom Siegel who said, we have to find a different location. And, and now that we found it. 
We're going to have to, we have to wrap this interview, but I, I can't let you guys go without asking you, Spike, to reflect on the impact of the body of your work. I don't, I don't get to talk to you all that often, but every few years, maybe, I don't get to talk to you every film. There's other people who in my group who want to talk to you, but it seems it's undeniable that at the moment that we're in culturally, the Black Lives Matter movement, um, obviously having an African-American President Barack Obama, I'm going back a bit, but now the consciousness that seems to be surging to the fore, that's not black people, but all people of goodwill who want to see the change. Can you, and you're still you know, working at the height of your powers as a filmmaker, but can you look back and say, I helped create this? I'm not going to say that. I'm right. going to say this. I'm not right. going to say that. But here's the thing, though. Seeing. Oh, look, look, I'm going to let you go. I'm going to be very quick, Delroy. Seeing people march, chant, and kneel all over the world who aren't black mm -hmm. because of the murder of George Floyd. I'd never seen anything like that. That that was a worldwide phenomenon. Phenomenon. Thank you. I <laughs> that that I mean, even in the United States, there were some towns they had no black folks. You That's know, right. That's, right. That's right. That was a beautiful sight for me to see. And then, oh. mm -hmm. and then it became less beautiful. On January 6th. Well, and every action has a reaction, right? Yes. Let, let me just, I know we have to stop. Let me just say this. I'm, I'm glad um, what I was going to say was, that's not the spike to say that I helped create this. It's not for him. To, and I'm glad you said that, Spike, because that's not for him to say that. I think that that I is for, that well, and that's part of the, yeah. well, that's part of the power of the work. Yeah. The fact that he's not saying I'm trying to do X, but no pun intended. Um, I'm simply telling I'm telling stories from my perspective, stories that I feel are important, stories that illuminate the human condition. And he proceeds about he goes about the business of simply telling those stories. And then cumulatively, Sharon, as you say, at a certain point, the rest of the culture catches up. He wasn't trying to do that. He was simply telling stories. And I think the power of that work is in him actually not saying that. He mm. was simply telling stories that he felt that he feels are important to be told. And at a certain point, the culture comes around and says, oh, my God. Yeah, now we see it. And it's well, I and it's and it's critical it's it's I know they're asking us to stop. It's critical <laughs> what, he, what he said when he said the joy the um the Black Lives Matter scene was filmed before Black Lives Matter. Well, before Black Lives Matter, but also before we started principal photography. And here we hadn't well, started Black principal Black photography yet. People just felt that it was before the whole thing with BLM exploded with. Right. Yeah. We didn't predate Black Lives Matter. That's the power of the storytelling. And I hope that, um, well, that's that's the power of the storytelling. And that's 
I want to say, I hope indicative of, or speaks to the impact of the work on on audiences, anybody who has seen the film. Well, I'd just like to uh, be able to point to say how much power the work that filmmakers do and actors do has. It takes time. It's not, it's, you don't flip a switch, but over time, it's the most, I think, the most powerful thing in, in our society. So God bless. Thank, thank you. you. Thank you, Spike Lee. Thank you, Delroy Lindo. Thanks for coming on the wrap up. And okay. um, you stay safe. Clubhouse is the hip new app that has taken social media by storm with big names like Elon Musk and Kevin Hart jumping onto the app and its invite only structure, giving it a certain cool aura. Jump Clubhouse jumped from 1 million users at the end of 2020 to nearly 5 million downloads less than two months into 2021. So should Facebook and Twitter be worried? The Raps Sean Birch and Big Technologies Alex Kantrowitz tackled that very question on the latest installment of Tech Talk. Take a listen. Hey everyone, welcome back to another edition of Tech Talk over here at The Wrap. I am Sean Birch, the resident tech reporter over at The Wrap. And I'm joined as always by Alex Kantrowitz, the publisher of the Big Technology Newsletter over at Substack. Alex, good to see you again, how you doing? I'm doing well, nice to see you, Sean. The hair is looking great. <laughs> Thanks, yeah, as we were just talking about offline, I haven't got a cut since, uh, I think either late September or early October. So I'm doing my part to try and avoid crowds during this whole COVID issue, obviously. I like it. It's like a NHL playoff beard. <laughs> That's what I'm going for because beards are kind of played out anyway. That's like really, you know, 2016 flavor at this point. That's right. Um, okay, enough about my hair though. We'll move on to something that's a little more pressing, I think, which is Clubhouse. Um, it's the resident hot app, I think, for 2021 right now. And for those that aren't aware, it's an app where you go on, you go into a room, and you can pretty much talk about anything, right, Alex? And you can see people from Elon Musk to Kevin Hart to Steve Ballmer on there talking about a variety of different topics. And we reported last week over at The Wrap that I think they closed with about a million users at the end of 2020. They're already up to about 5 million now. Uh, after opening up the app a bit because it was invitation only and, and remains that way. So just uh, opening it up first, Alex, you know, what are your initial impressions of Clubhouse and its meteoric rise so far? Well, I think there's a reason for the rise. It's a great app. Uh, it's just fun to use. The, the conversations can be uh, really fascinating. And when you have people like you mentioned, like an Elon Musk or Steve Ballmer there, um, you can join rooms with them. And even if you're just in the audience, there's a feeling of shared presence that is just very rarely experienced on the internet. And that can be electric. So the fact that uh, invites are going for $125 on eBay is not really a surprise. Um, it's sort of the hottest spot on the internet right now. It's the hottest app. Uh, and it makes sense. I mean, it lives up to its billing ever. There was a, I, I got it and I've been using it fairly religiously. Uh, and uh, I don't know. I think it's a lot of fun. I'm excited to see it develop. Why do you think that is? You know, what's been grab? you know, why have you been gravitating towards the app so much you think? And has that caught you off guard almost initially? It has. Uh, I think there's a sense of urgency to the conversations there because mm -hmm. they do disappear after they're done. Unlike a podcast where you, you can watch any you can listen to it anytime. Like the conversations on Plug House, on Clubhouse, they just Plug House is 
it really is go plug your stuff there but uh you know i i think they do um yeah they disappear so like you're either there for it or you're not and i think it makes people speak a little bit more freely um clubhouse might suspend you if you record and then tweet the audio uh and so i feel like people feel free to yeah to talk and discuss things and um they're typically like very time centric, very timely. So like, I don't know, there's some really good stuff happening there, no really, doubt. Some really, I, I think you might be getting at the secret sauce there a bit, right? Which is that it isn't permanent. And so for instance, right, we talk about Elon Musk, you know, you see that he's going on there, you know, you see people talk about on Twitter, you got 10 minutes to rush over there and try and get into that room. Mm-hmm. So a bit of, uh, Want to say hysteria, right? But just that excitement about, oh man, this is going down right now. This event online, I need to get over there. Um, how do you Are you on it, Sean? Yeah, I've been on it for a few months now. We wrote about it, um, I think, in early December over at the Wrap, uh, and I joined. And you know, I, I saw kind of what you're talking about when I first joined. Um, if, if you'll go back a few months, you remember when that audio leaked of Tom Cruise going, you know, crazy on set happened, right? Mm-hmm. Next- no, there's five different, you know, major clubhouse rooms popping off, talking about it in the moment. And that's when I kind of saw like, wow, this really is Twitter, but for audio, right? Where you're just instantly reacting to the news on there. Yeah. And it's kinder than Twitter also, which is nice. Like Twitter is just a bunch of people yelling at you and <laughs> clubhouse, you know, I think you have to own it a little bit more when you're live on the line with someone. And it lends itself to more nuanced conversations, which I'm a big fan of. Yeah. How do you think the uh, pandemic has worked into this too? Do you think that's, you know, really helped them? And then maybe as we start going back, hopefully outside and doing more stuff towards the end of this year, do you think it'll maybe lose a bit of its momentum or, or do you think it's here to stay and simply just having people inside right now, you know, looking for human contact, looking to talk to other people is really just kind of helped give it a leg up right away. Yeah, I think it's here to stay. I think it's it's not going to there. It's definitely a new format that people are going to stick with. Um, but I do think that there is a pandemic bubble that's happening for Clubhouse. Like, why would you show up on a Wednesday night to listen to people talk about things you're, you know, 60 percent interested in? Uh, the answer is you don't have anything else to do. Um, and so I do think that the pandemic is giving it uh, an artificial bump. Uh, but here's an interesting thing to consider. When it scales, uh, mm. are there going to be cool, interesting conversations to tune into all the time? If that's the case, you know, it only takes three or four really good discussions going on at a time to make this app a power app, right? Like right now we have like maybe one a day, but there's only 5 million people on it. What happens if that expands to 50 million or 100 million? Uh, you might see those main conversations get really, really interesting. Uh, and you know, it, it could just demand more and more of your time. So I see the case, the bull case for clubhouse, no doubt. I think it can be pretty big. Um, but I also think that there's no doubt that, um, you know, people would rather be at dinner, but they can't. So they're at clubhouse and that's just kind of how it goes. You touched on something that I wanted to dive in a little bit more. Um, you know, over the last few months since I've been using the app, as you mentioned, right, there are some of these nightly uh, shows that, that keep recurring, right? Um, are we almost looking at maybe the you know 2021 version of, of radio here, right, where you're going to have a few 
clubhouse shows, right? That people come to every Tuesday night, every Thursday night, almost like they would uh, with their favorite podcast. Is that what we're looking at here? It could be. Um, the argument against that is that the people that are generally really good at this stuff either already have traditional radio deals or pod big podcasts or they uh, are going to get them quickly after rising on Clubhouse. It's hard to create a compelling audio experience. It's just not easy. So I, uh, I think that this is going to be something we'll find out whether user generated content can be like must listen uh, appointment audio. Um, and I think that's up in the air. So, uh, you know, there could definitely be like a, you know, a handful of shows out on Clubhouse that people want to tune into regularly or people want to listen to as they drive. Um, but the only way Clubhouse will keep those on the app is if it finds a way to make those creators more money than they would going elsewhere. I mean, think about what we've talked about on this show previously. Joe Rogan getting 100 plus million from Spotify to do his show. So why would Joe Rogan uh, then, you know, do it on Clubhouse? Or how could Clubhouse attain him, uh, retain him? You know, that's a big question. So it'll be, I, I think that this battle is going to be absolutely fascinating. Um, because, and maybe this will segue into our next topic, uh, because we have Clubhouse, traditional podcast companies, TV competing with it. Facebook is going to create their own version and Twitter will create its own version. So this is going to be intense and super exciting to watch play out. Yeah. And I mean, you wrote about it a few days ago over at Big Technology. Uh, you know, some of these major tech companies are already taking notice, right? So as you just mentioned, right, Twitter is already starting to roll out their own competitor. Uh, Facebook, you know, we saw Mark Zuckerberg about two weeks ago now. He was on Clubhouse. The joke started rolling in immediately, right? Like, oh, here comes the Facebook knockoff. And, and of course, right, later that week, it was reported that Facebook is working on their own Clubhouse style app or feature. I guess, you know, who do you think is should be most concerned here? Is it Facebook? Is it Twitter? Is it Spotify and, and podcasters, maybe? Who, who should be most on guard about Clubhouse? rise right now spotify number one twitter number two um spotify because i do think that this is going to take share from podcasts uh at least in the short short term and maybe it will build interest in podcasts over time for instance uh if there's a great clubhouse show and the people decide they want to do a more professionally produced pod um then you know that could potentially work as a podcast and generate more interest in podcasts or People might just say, hey, I like hearing people, you know, this talk about issues on audio. Maybe I could do that more often and then start to download a few more podcasts and stuff like that. I think that Twitter is is um, there is danger for Twitter. And I think Twitter knows this because mm -hmm. Twitter is all about what's happening in real time. And yeah. Twitter is notoriously bad at conversations. And here's Clubhouse, something that tells you what's happening in real time, like your Tom Cruise example, uh, and something that's really good at conversations. Super yeah. big threat to Twitter. That's why they're trying to clone it. And I've seen, just going back to what you said about podcasts, like I've seen it even just in the few months I've been using the app where 
you know, I get off work maybe a few hours later, I'm on Clubhouse listening for 45 minutes of a conversation. And I notice, you know, maybe I'm doing it while I'm at the gym or something on the treadmill or whatever. That's time usually I would be spending on a podcast or listening to music. So you're right, there is a trade-off there. And something I think certainly Spotify and others need to at least be uh, cognizant of. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, there have been, I, I tweeted that hot take about the change in podcasts and some people told me I was an idiot, which is typical on Twitter. And other people are like, yeah, I haven't listened to a podcast since downloading this app. And I think that the podcasting company should pay a lot of attention to the people who are talking about that because I can say for sure that it has reduced my podcasting consumption. Uh, and I'm nervous that it will, uh, you know, I, I have invested a lot into building my own podcast, um, big technology podcast, and, and I'm nervous that Clubhouse will stunt the growth, to be honest. I appreciate the candor, but I mean, I've, mm -hmm. I've seen that you're over, at least on Clubhouse, you're active, you're hosting stuff, right? It seems to me. So you're at least trying to be proactive and trying to double dip there, right? Where you have your podcast going, but then you're also, mm -hmm. uh, you know, you're prominent on Clubhouse as well is what you're going for. It looks like at least. Yeah. I mean, I think that like with every new social platform, there's an opportunity uh, for a land grab to build a big audience there as they mature. And so like, um, I'm a in clubhouse, you know, because I think it's interesting to report on and like one a there because yeah, I understand that this is the moment to try to build an audience there. And maybe that audience then moves moves over to my podcast after that. And I think a lot of content creators are thinking this way, but in the meantime, we're just giving free labor to clubhouse, which is sort of how it works often with these mm -hmm. platforms like clubhouse, like YouTube, like Twitter where the middleman makes the most money uh, and ultimately the people generating the value are harmed. No, that's a, that's a great point. I, I do want to go back to just really quickly, you know, Facebook and Twitter, if they're pursuing this, you know, let's say Facebook mm -hmm. does roll out the copycat version. You know, we've seen what they've done, you know, uh, copying stories, for instance, right? They took that from Snapchat and, and they've killed it over on Instagram, on Facebook with it, right? Um, do you think people would gravitate towards a Facebook, uh, Facebook branded clubhouse club, or do you think at this point, uh, maybe the name's just a bit toxic for lack of a better word right now with everything they have hanging over them, people would shy away from it. Yeah. I, I think that like if Facebook provided a good experience, people would use it. And we've seen that with stories, but I don't think Facebook is built for it. And I think it will fail on Facebook. And here's why. Um, if you think about the networks that you have on Facebook, um, you have your friends, your Facebook friends, and that's basically everyone you've met in your life, right? And people don't post very much on the Facebook feed because they just don't want to speak to all those people at once, you know? And so I think that they'd run into the same issue with the Clubhouse clone. Then you could put it in groups, right? Okay, so there's a like interest in, in if you're in a group you like are all interested in walking your dog and you can compare notes walking your dog on uh on the facebook clubhouse clone but i just don't find that so compelling it's more interesting for current events and there's real value in gaining a clubhouse follower you know people do these things because they're interested in building audiences that's why they post for free there's real value in building a clubhouse follower because you can re-engage with them sometime down the line 
right? Mm -hmm. There's real value in building a Twitter follower because you can bring them in a room the same way some, and talk to them again sometime down the line and put tweets in their timeline. With Facebook, it's like, what are you going to do? You're going to add more Facebook friends? Um, so, you know, I just think that, like, if Facebook looks at this as a way for people to enhance their audience building, then then I think, you know, maybe there's a way to do it. But it just feels extremely awkward on the network that they have today. I'd agree with you. It does seem that Twitter at least has a, a more of an in there when it comes to their, their version uh, than Facebook does. Um, two more things before I let you get out of here. Um, you know, we've already seen when it comes to Clubhouse, you know, from the New York Times and some other publications that are covering it, they are centering in on whether or not they're, or they're focusing in on whether there's, you know, misinformation on the app, you know, people spreading fake news, stuff like that. Um, is that something that, you know, we're just going to have to, I guess, worry about, I guess, with every new social platform moving forward or, you know, am I even wrong to not be that worked up right now about an app that's still relatively small? And, you know, so it's just hard for me to get worked up about someone maybe saying something that's a lie or incorrect in a room with another 300 people. Or am I just looking at this the wrong way, I guess? You know, I, I think that there's going to be a debate here. I mean, there's going to be a group of people who are going to be very pro-aggressive moderation. And there's going to be a group of people who are going to say that Clubhouse should be hands-off. Um, so the hands-off argument is uh, is pretty logical. I like it. It's basically saying um, people are going to be live in audio. And if someone starts lying, then the other people will correct them in real time. And that, as opposed to Twitter, where you say something, that's a lie. And yeah, you might get some replies, but the retweets can make it like just go absolutely bananas. So, um, so I see that that you know I see people who are like saying, "Oh, the pro content moderation side should take a chill pill. This is ridiculous. You know, let it be." Um, but on the other hand, uh, I do think that as we see the platform grow, just like with Facebook, right? Facebook started out, you know, pictures of college parties. Uh, you know, pictures of people on campus studying and stuff. And then at a certain point had child porn and terrorism uh, and all this other bad stuff. And the same thing will happen to Clubhouse um, in, in its own way. Um, and you'll see groups where people will engage in groupthink and spiral on conspiracy theories. And what's to stop Alex Jones from like having the most popular account on Clubhouse? And is that the platform you want to build? So... Um, so yeah, I think it's going to be a debate and, 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 you know, with content moderation, there's never like a one size fits all solution. It will always be messy. It will live in the gray area and platforms will never get it a hundred percent. Right. And so clubhouse will just have its unique flavor of that type of stuff. I think you touched on the beauty of clubhouse though, which is that you're right. It actually helps that people can call out someone else in the room in the moment when it's happening. So if you do hear something that's Hey, you know, that does sound bogus to me. You can speak up usually, you know, if you're allowed to speak in the room. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a feature bug, at least on Clubhouse right now. But I mean, they do. Wait, 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 wait. But it's, it's yeah. civil now. But like, there's going to be moments, there's going to be rooms that are, you're, you're going to have bad faith actors creating rooms mm -hmm. that are going to attract lots of people. Uh, and, and I think by and large, the conversations have been good there so far. But 
there will be some that get completely out of hand. So, because like ultimately the moderator can decide who speaks. So all you need is seven people who are pushing the same, you know, particular thing. I'm not saying there's like that we need to erase conspiracy theories from the internet. There's obviously a push and pull in terms of free speech and, and policing stuff, but like there's also going to be, you know, some nasty, nasty things that will happen on clubhouse and everyone will be like, how do we not see that coming? You know, we can see it that that there will be, you know, some iterations of this. We just don't know exactly what Clubhouse's unique flavor is. Yeah, and I will say, talking to some of the executives over there a few months ago for a story we did, you know, they're obviously at least you know aware of this, and, and they, you know, it's not a free fall over there, right? Right? Like, if you um, say something racist, right, you can be reported for it, and you know, there is a system in place where you know you could get kicked off the app for saying something crass or inappropriate. No doubt. Right? I mean, yeah. it's, it's not controls, what I was getting at. No, no doubt. I think they're, these are table stakes controls for any social app. Only other thing I wanted to touch on with you, Alex. Um, obviously, they're still in their early run. They're probably just focused right now on just getting as many people on board as they can when they open it up to everyone. Let's look down the line a little bit. You know, let's say they do want to monetize the app at some point. How does that look to you? Is it cramming ads in somehow in between mm-hmm. conversations, or, or what are we looking at here? I think it's tips to people that moderate, um, or tips to participants, and Clubhouse will take a percentage. And then there's ability to subscribe to exclusive rooms, mm. and Clubhouse takes a percentage. So tips and and, and uh, subscriptions. And I think there will be benefit that goes to the creators, um, but we'll, we'll see exactly what that looks like down the road. All right, well, we'll touch on that in a few months, I think. But as always, Alex, thanks for joining me. Do you have anything you'd like to plug for coming up this week? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, this week I have a podcast and a newsletter coming on the same topic. I interviewed three U.S. mayors, Mayor Francis Suarez of Miami, Mayor Steve Adler of Austin and Mayor uh, Satya Rhodes Conway of Madison, Wisconsin. And we talked about the future of tech in the United States. Uh, One podcast, big technology podcast, one episode, uh, all three mayors, quick conversations, 15 to 20 minutes a pop. But um, I think that by the time people get to the end of these conversations, you'll hear a lot about where tech is moving. And uh, I came away convinced that the Bay Area uh, is going to get a real serious challenge here. And, you know, San Francisco might not uh, be the same after the pandemic because it's it's kind of sitting on its hands while other, other cities make compelling pitches for tech workers, tech investors, tech companies. Uh, and I think that's ultimately good for the country, more evenly distributed uh, you know, growth, more evenly distributed tech uh, business, I think is is positive for the U.S. So tune in to listen to that. It's already live. I put it live this morning. Uh, and uh, I think it's an enjoyable listen, but I'm biased. But you be the judge. Great stuff. I'll be sure to check it out later. Uh, thanks again, Alex. Uh, everyone, be sure to check out our tech coverage over at The Wrap Pro. And thanks again to Alex, Chucky, and Francisco, our uh, backhand guys. We'll talk to you guys later.
All right, that tech talk is a part of Rap Pro, which is a members-only offering from the rap and an essential news source for the entertainment business. Rap Pro was designed specifically for Hollywood insiders who want to stay on top of the business of movies, TV, and streaming, and includes exclusive access, news, and insights that are not available anywhere else. For more information and to subscribe to Rap Pro now, visit therap.com slash join. And that's it for this week's episode of The Wrap Up. Thank you to all of our listeners. And remember to please follow or subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcast. Be sure to rate and review us and let us know what you think of the pod. See you next time.